0: Hi, welcome back to the podcast. John Campbell here from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. This week, I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Murray Jelinski, two weeks in a row. This time, Murray is going to discuss some of his latest research on internal parasites of beef cattle. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, Murray. It's great to have you here again. Thanks again for helping us out one more time.
1: Thanks, John. Great to be back.
0: Well, we won't go through a big introduction as our listeners can can just go back to episode 28 on abomasal ulcers to learn more about your background, but maybe you could start by telling us how you got interested or why you thought it was important to do research on internal parasites in cattle.
1: Yeah, great question. You know, John, you and I, we same vintage class in 1985, you from OVC and me from Western Canadian Vet College. Better medicine, when we went through school back then, we were basically told internal parasites really didn't have an effect. Our winters were too cold. This was really an issue for people that raise cattle in the southern U.S. About four or five years ago, Dr. Grant Ryan, a, a colleague of mine and a mentor of mine who was working at Merck, reached out and said, hey, you know, we'd like to do some parasite work. Specifically, we'd like to look at how much do yearling beef cattle on pasture get accumulate parasites? And I thought, well, not really my area of interest, but I could probably find a couple summer students to help. And we went out and we did this first study and identified just back then, just looking at fecal egg counts as a measure for parasite load what does yearling cattle have in saskatchewan for parasite loads and then that led to a a larger study another study and and lo and behold started seeing yeah there it appears that uh, maybe not surprising because other data has come out certainly in the dairy industry and you've done parasite work as well in feedlot cattle saying yeah we should be a little bit more mindful of this and then dr john gilliard uh, from uh, a parasitologist at the school And Calgary reached out and said you know I have this large grant uh, interested in knowing if anybody at WCBM wants to collaborate with with me in my group and so Cheryl Waldner and Fabian Eulinger and I we said yeah John we we can maybe help you out and 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 get involved in this study so that's kind of where it came about I I never really had a this burning interest I guess John in in parasites but it's kind of pulled into it now I kind of find it a little little bit of a fascinating fascinating area of research.
0: Yeah, that's great. And we should mention neither of us are parasitologists. Yeah, uh, we, we do do research on lots of aspects in the beef industry, but we probably need to get Dr. Gilliard here on the podcast at some point to talk about the the real expert on, on parasitology. But today we want to chat about one of your latest projects that you've just finished a little while ago with your grad student, Daniel Marchand, on gastrointestinal nematodes and whether or not we need to deworm cattle, in particular grass cattle. So let, let's start by backing up a bit. Can you help us understand what exactly gastrointestinal nematodes are? That's a big fancy name. We're really talking about worms.
1: Right. Right. Let's keep it simple. Worms. I like worms. So, uh, you know, I guess if we we back it up even further, we can think about that basically all species uh, from mammals to fish to reptiles all have parasites, including humans. Right. And when we look at uh, gastrointestinal nematodes or worms uh, of cattle, I guess we can also back that up a little bit and look at Parasites that infect cattle in general. So we have this group what we call the nematodes and they're also called The round worms strongyles. Okay, so that's the one group and that's the one we're most interested in Then we have other we have other worms as well. We have tapeworms, which are called cestodes eh, You could probably we find those eggs every now and in a fecal sample, but doesn't really mean anything and then some of the listeners, they'll be uh, aware of liver flukes, especially in Manitoba and sort of where the ground is wet, and we can get into why that is. And and so they're called, the liver flukes are called trematodes, okay? So kind of have these three big classes of, of worms, but we're really only interested in nematodes, okay? And so when we when we think about nematodes, we can kind of further divide that. We have the ones that more or less live in the gut, the in the stomachs, particularly the abomasum, which is our, our topic on ulcers the last podcast. So we have those ones. And then we also have this little bit of oddball one, a lungworm. Okay. And it's also a nematode. And it kind of has the same cycle as all the other uh, roundworms. But rather than going into the gut, it's larvae, it migrates out of the gut into the lungs. And in the lungs, they form adults. And that's is the is the larvae and the adults are resident in the lungs you get this lungworm so kind of like the tapeworms and the liver flukes it's kind of how lungworm is too it, it's kind of hit and miss you might have an outbreak on pasture it's not very common whereas the roundworms, worms the, the nematodes we find them everywhere we can just about take a fecal sample from any herd in canada and look for eggs and we're going to find the roundworm so In the big picture, that is kind of what we're looking at, and we call them the gastrointestinal nematodes because they're living in the gut, really, is what it comes down to.
0: So you mentioned the life cycle. What, What actually is the life cycle for these parasites? How do the cattle get them, and how long does it take for them to start excreting them?
1: Okay, so what we call, when we describe the life cycle, we call it a direct life cycle. So let's start, we have the adult's and they're living in the gut okay they're maybe in the intestine and you have males and females and they mate and they produce eggs and then the eggs get shed through the feces out onto pasture the egg then within that egg it hatches into a larvae stage one and larvae what we call an l1 and it kind of breaks out of the egg capsule and it's in the manure and it quickly goes into another stage the second stage of larvae L2s, and then quickly into L3. And the L3 is the one that's most important because sort of that's the infective stage. So how do how do the cattle pick them up? Well, those larvae, they migrate away from those fecal paths on pasture, and they get into the grass. Cattle come along. They graze that grass. They consume it. The, those larvae go drop into the rumen, and there they become L4s. Uh, the fourth stage of the larvae development, and they start migrating through the gut. And they're, as they're migrating through the gut, they're kind of feeding on things and causing some damage. And ultimately, what do they do? They become adults again. And so it all starts over again. Now they start releasing eggs again, and this goes through this whole cycle. And so from the time they ingest that L3 to producing eggs, we call that the prepatent period, Eh, It's fairly rapid, three, four weeks, okay? And in that time on pasture from an egg to an L3, depending on how warm it is and how wet it is outside, that could be about a week. So you can see you get this very quick amplification of parasites. So if you're starting with a contaminated animal in the springs, for whatever reason, they're... You have a lot of parasite burden over winter, and then you get on the pasture and you have a whole herd like that. You can see how that pasture gets contaminated, and you just keep amplifying more and more eggs get produced and go into L3s and ingested, and, and on and on. So that's the general cycle. If you look at something like a liver fluke that's called an indirect cycle and in that case you need a little snail is the intermediate host in that so it kind of complicates that life cycle so for all the things that we're going to talk about today it's just that direct life cycle we know it very well and it's important to know because it's important for how we control parasites by knowing that how that cycle works
0: how do those parasites survive the winter they kind of have a couple strategies right
1: yeah that's a that's a really good question that we we know that the the parasite the larvae basically go into dormancy and historically is kind of how we started this conversation we thought that most of them would be killed off in our severe winters however if there's enough snowpack it creates the insulation those those parasites will stay on pasture okay the other thing i think where you're going with this too is that that they'll also be stay resident within the animal, right? So they're living quite comfortably in there. And there's certain species, one in particular called ostertasia, where it gets to the L4 stage that I was talking about. And then it basically shuts down. It's called arrested development. And it just sits there in suspended animation in the animal and it doesn't do anything. It's kind of evolved to know enough that, hey, if I become an adult, and I start spending all this energy producing eggs, they're just going out, dropping into the freezing cold. So there is these biological sensing mechanisms within these larvae. They know exactly when it's cold outside and not to be producing. Similar, there's parasites that are down in the southern climates that also sense the same thing when it gets super hot out. It's almost like the cold, too hot too cold. Parasites don't like that. And they'll shut down. They'll get arrested development in the Southern hemisphere for the exact same reasons. They'll wait till the weather's cooler and then they'll start up again. Very, very well adaptive and evolved uh, species.
0: Well, you described a bunch of different species of these worms, these gastrointestinal nematodes. And obviously there's more than one species. Uh, And we don't need to get into all the details of the different scientific names, perhaps, because that'll get confusing. But is there a difference between species in how common they are and how much damage they cause and how quickly they multiply?
1: Great question, John. And yes, there is in a nutshell. So one of the things we have to think about is that most cattle are infected with multiple species. Okay, you don't just see one species there's a combination. It's a community. So when you went out on pasture, if you were able to find larvae that are you know, on the pasture and you were to look at them under a microscope, you could count them and say, we have so many of these and so many of those. So if we, if we back up though, and we think in broad terms, we have two main species that we'll see in sort of the northern temperate zones or western western Canada or Canada in general. If we go further south, you're going to find that uh, sort of the composition of the species changes. So where we are, we have basically two main species, Ostertasia, or the brown stomach worm, and Cuperia, okay? And surprisingly, and we'll get into this we also found homuncus and that is tends to be a worm that we tend to associate with the southern areas and it's also called the barber pole worm or the wire worm and the reason it's called the barber pole worm is because many of us can still appreciate going to the barber when we're younger and it's that red and white striped candy cane look on it the reason it looks that way is because they're very good at feeding on blood and they engorge themselves with blood and they can have kind of that look at them so is would be the one that causes the most damage, but it doesn't produce a lot of eggs. We're talking a female worm producing 100 to 200 eggs per day. That's not very much. But when they infect the animals, they cause a lot of damage. Then you have Cuperia. It's kind of one of those weaklings. It, it, It doesn't cause a lot of damage unless there's overwhelming infection. But they're big egg producers, thousands and thousands of eggs in a day. So, and then we have homonchus, and it's kind of in between. It can be quite, it can cause severe infections and it can produce anywhere from 10 to 15,000 eggs per female per day. So why is this important? Because right now, when we go to look at or your, your cattle have parasites, we'll take a fecal sample, we'll count how many eggs in there, and we'll go, oh, yeah, this fecal sample in every gram of feces, we're finding 10 eggs, 50 eggs, or 100 eggs. The problem with that, John, is thats is that 10 Cuperia eggs, 500 Cuperia eggs, or 500 Ostertasia eggs? And so that is the problem, and in to to make things worse, is the eggs all look the same, more or less all look the same. We have other lesser species called Neomatodirus and Tracheirus that we find all the time as well, but they don't do much in their eggs. You can look at them and go, hey, that's different. So one of the unique parts of this study is we actually use genomics. We took the eggs from these samples, we hatched them to larvae, and then we basically ground up all those larvae and we look for a specific gene within those larvae, and it's almost like a barcode. It's almost like the barcode you have when you go to the store. Each individual item has its own barcode, and when you swipe it across the scanner, it says this is a can of beans or, or a pack of hot dogs. Same thing with these the genetic barcode. You can look at that genetic segment from this worm and say this worm is an ostratasia, this one's a homuncus. So in this study, we were able to do that. So not only did we look at fecal egg counts, but we also looked at production. Is there a relationship between egg counts and, and reduced production? And what are the worms that we're seeing out there? Who is infected the cattle? And so we found a lot of homuncus, which was very surprising, begs the question, In previous studies where they weren't doing this sort of barcoding, have homuncus always been there and we didn't know it or is this new? My feeling is it's new because if you go back in the literature 20, 30 years, there are ways that you can actually speciate and tell which which eggs are which. Basically, you hatch them to a larvae, you look at the larvae under a microscope and each one is unique and so we do have a database from studies over the years where people have done that and have not reported finding homuncus or if they did in very, very low levels. And we've also seen more recently, a bison study, five different bison herds where a lot of homuncus was found. So, you know, we can go into, is this a climate change thing? Who knows, but certainly there's some sort of evolution happening within our parasite populations
0: interesting well you mentioned performance and productivity what are the potential ways that these worms can actually impact the performance of the cattle
1: yeah we usually think of kind of three mechanisms the first one is the the worms are basically crawling around in the mucosa that's the lining of the intestines and the lining of the guts and when they do that they sort of change the viability of the gut i guess if you will in particular, they tend to migrate around the glands that really release enzymes and acids into the stomach. And, and if, if that changes, then the animal can't digest the feed properly. So that's one, one of the issues. The other one is if they're heavily parasitized, their immune system has to spend a lot of energy fighting off those parasites, just like cattle that have pneumonia, right? And anything else, whenever you have that immune system ramped up, it drains you. You know, you get sick, you feel drained out. That's partly because your immune system's kicking in and, and using up your reserves. So that's the a second mechanism. The bigger mechanism is that when parasites infect animals in general, it, it changes their hormones as well within their body and it depresses their appetite. So here you have animals with what we call sort of a subclinical infection of parasites. So they don't have a rough hair coat, they don't have diarrhea. It's not like you go through the herd and say, yeah, those animals for sure have parasites because they fit that clinical picture of an animal that is heavily parasites. No, you're looking at animals that look completely healthy, but they're not eating as much. And when you do body weights between ones dewormed and not, you'll find there's a difference. And so that suppression of appetite is probably the main driver why we see a loss in production.
0: Okay. So we talked about measuring how many parasites an animal has by doing egg counts. You talked about some of the limitations. We can't speciate it, so we don't know what species it is. Are there other limitations to those egg count tests that we can do that are fairly easy to do, but but they do have some limitations.
1: Yeah. So for those that are unfamiliar with sort of what we're talking about, we do fecal egg counts. And just as the name or phrase implies, we go out and we, we grab a fecal sample. We can either do that off the ground if it's fresh and it has to be freshly voided, it can't be sitting there for a bit, because if it's sitting there for a day or two, all of a sudden the eggs hatch into the larvae and they scurry away and then the eggs are gone. And so we're trying to count the eggs. So it has to be a fresh sample. Your veterinarian might do it where they actually put on a palpation sleeve, like they're going to preg check and just reach into the rectum and pull out basically about a golf size, you know, sample of feces. And Often what we'll do and what we did in this study is we'll sample 25 head and we'll, we'll mix them all together and that'll be our pooled sample. And then we'll take a small amount of that feces and we drop it into some solution. That's very basically concentrated sugar. And the eggs are light and they float to the top of the, the solution. And we put a little clear cover slip on it that would use for a microscope. And the eggs stick to that cover slip we look under the microscope and we count the eggs. That's as simple as it is. Fecal egg counts, and then we report that as how many eggs did we find per gram of feces. Okay, so that's a simple process. We do it in dogs and cats. Any veterinarian can do that, their technicians can do it. It's, it's a very common, simple, relatively inexpensive test. Here's the problem, as you already mentioned, John, you look at the eggs, you don't know what you're really looking at. Yep, we can tell there's trichuris, nematodirus. all the other ones look the same. The other problem is that, as we already talked about, there could be a lot of eggs, or are they all coperia, I don't know. But the other thing is that in a day, the animal doesn't you know, shed eggs at a steady level. They might have a whole bunch of eggs and very few eggs. And more importantly, within an animal, if you look at a herd, we have what we call our super shedders. So if you're just sampling one animal, man, you might find 300 eggs per gram, which would be huge. In Western Canada, that would be very high. Down in the U.S. where it's warmer, not so much, but that would be very high. But if you average that over 20 animals, maybe it's only 40, right? So that's why you have to sample more than one animal and you can do individual counts on each animal or you can pool them, but you have to be aware that it changes by the animal during the day when they shed and it also changes by the animal as well. And so it's a little bit hard at times to actually, and lots of people have done this study, it's very time consuming where they've looked at fecal egg counts and then the animal was it was euthanized, and then they went into the guts and they counted all the adults and all the larvae that are in the eggs that were in the digestive tract, big job. And those studies really show you that mm, sometimes it's not very well correlated between how many eggs are coming out the back end versus how heavily parasitized they are. But that is our best measurements. There's other things we can do. We can measure certain hormones and other enzymes that are indicative of damage going on in the mucosa. And there's actually even antibody tests. So we can, if we want to know, has this herd been exposed to Ostertasia, we can pull out a blood sample and say, yeah, they have antibodies to that particular parasite. What does that mean, though? It just means they're exposed to it. Do they have an ongoing infection? I don't know. So those aren't really useful. And so we, it always basically comes down to you're going to do a fecal egg test.
0: Okay, so we do see variation in those egg counts from herd to herd and place to place. What sort of factors can affect that parasite load?
1: Yeah, you know, another great question, John. If you look at the literature and and our study is the same as what's been reported in, in the previous two studies that I, I mentioned that I've worked on, there's a wide, wide variation between herds in fecal egg counts so john you can have a herd and i'll come out and do fecal egg counts on your cattle in the spring on your yearlings we're talking here and maybe your average fecal egg count is 10 and i live two miles away or no maybe not two maybe 25 miles away and i do my fecal egg counts and i'm 40. so what is the difference why are we different well a couple things weather is a big thing probably the two main factors or determinants of how heavily the animals are parasitized is temperature and precipitation. So if it's really too hot or too cold, we talked about earlier, the the parasites don't survive on pasture very well. So you don't get that amplification. And if it's too dry, that is a real problem. They don't really like dry weather, think about earthworms, they're not up on the surface in the hot sun, they're burrowed down into the dirt, right? Where it's cool and moist. That's that's what we're talking here too. They need to be sheltered from the sun. And so one of the things we'll notice when we do studies such as ours across the province, that we can somewhat relate parasite loads to how much rain there was. So when we did this study in 2019, what can anybody remember about 2019? it was powder dry in the spring. It was horribly dry. The worst conditions for doing a parasite study. And then COVID hit, and this was actually a two year study. In 2020, we couldn't get out and go to farms. We weren't allowed to do that. Yeah, everybody's locked down. And then 21 comes around. I must say 2020 was a normal year, good moisture. 21 comes around, we're thinking, okay, this will be our second year, powder dry again. So when you look at the data that we generated, we could find that parasites impacted production, and that was in a very dry year, right? And so that's really important to, to keep in mind. Other factors involved too is is really the type of cattle. We, you know, if you're talking about parasite loads, all cattle develop immunity, so cows not very. You're not going to see a lot of parasites in in cows just because they have immunity, right? However, they are a source of pollution on, on the pasture. They do contaminate the pasture. The use of anthelmintics, have, have they been deworming the herd consistently? That also changes sort of the dynamics of the level of parasites. And, and just like we have antimicrobial resistance, we also have anthelmintic resistance, which is becoming a growing problem. So if you've been using a particular product year after year, it's possible that you're no longer killing off those worms because they're resistant to it. So there's a whole bunch of different factors. How we manage the cattle, what's the stocking densities, are you moving from paddock to paddock, are they on the same pasture all year? All those factors play into why your farm and my farm have different fecal egg counts.
0: Yeah, that's good. The stocking density one and the animal movement on pasture, that's such a tough one to study. We've we've looked at that in, in some of our studies and it's so hard to get a good grasp of exactly what is the stocking density and how often do they move and all those management factors. It's so complicated and it's really hard to study in some ways.
1: You know, John, that's a really good point. When we sat down to design the study, we talked about that. And then we got thinking, well, okay, how are we going to do that? You know, are we going to take an aerial photograph of the pastures and then we have to take out all the bush that they're not grazing on? And then the other thing is an important thing, too. It's been well shown is are the animals drinking out of sloughs or are you pumping water into a trough, right? So that has an effect on, on parasite loads as well, too. So there's all these other issues that make that stocking density a difficult question to answer. So in the end, we kind of threw up our hands and said, okay, we're not gonna bother about that. There's other people have shown in very controlled studies that you know, the more congregated they are, the bigger the problem. So to us, it was like, okay, we already know that. That's not what our, our study's about. We are just, our study is really about, is it economical to apply dewormers? in in yearling cattle in spring. That was our overriding question.
0: Well, let's talk about the study. Tell us how you picked herds and how you sampled the cattle and what you looked at.
1: Yeah, so I guess we had a couple criteria. We wanted about 20 herds spread across Saskatchewan. We needed to have yearling cattle that there was at least a hundred animals in the group. Okay, we didn't wanna look at 50 head, we wanted a hundred. We needed to have a producer that was willing, able to take the time to weigh the cattle in the spring and deworm them and allow us to take a pico sample and then do it again in the fall. We don't have people like we started the study, but in the fall it's sort of like I'm busy, I was doing harvesting, I was hanging, I was, whatever I was doing, and I just sold those cattle. I didn't have time for you guys to come out and weigh every animal again. So. We needed to have people that were committed to that, committed to the study. And the cattle couldn't have been dewormed for at least three months before turnout. So those were the basic criteria. Then we tried to sort of get them across the province. The first year we did the study, we didn't have a lot of herds from the southwest corner, but most of the other we had more or less covered off. And so we started with 20 herds. And because it was so dry that year, we had three herds that sold their cattle within... 45 days, they had no grass left. And so we ended up with the, uh, information on 17 herds. So when we went out in the spring, was at least 100 animals, and it was basically first 50 that came through the chute. One would be treated and one would be untreated. So we'd tag it, this is a treated animal, and it would get safeguard and long range. So two dewormers at the same time, One was an oral solution, that's safeguard. Many producers might be aware of that. And long range is just a topical you pour on their back. And so the long range actually provides, as the name implies, parasite control for at least 90 to 120 days. So as long as they're grazing, they shouldn't have parasites in them. So we had 25 animals that were treated. We had 25 animals that weren't treated that we also weighed and tagged. And then all the rest of them, they were untreated as well. So, in a herd of 100 or 200 head, there's only 25 animals that were treated. And those were the ones we we're really trying to figure out okay, because they've been treated with long range, they will be clean of parasites all through the entire grazing season. And will those ones have a better body weight gain, which we converted to average daily gain, than there are 25 controls? And so, that was in a nutshell our study, John.
0: And those two dewormers, Safeguard is a fenbendazole and long range is an Avermectin. And so there are two different classes. So it helps to control for any resistance might be out there as well.
1: Very good point. Yeah. And so controls for resistance. And the other thing is fenbendazole is really good, or the first product we use, Safeguard, really good for cleaning up any of these arrested Uh, uh, larvae as well the ones that are kind of hiding in the abomasum and it's really good for cleaning that up uh, as well so those two those two basically gave us an assurance that when we put those cattle out on pasture that they were going to be more or less parasite free can't be completely but more or less parasite free.
0: So what did you find from that first sampling, the parasite loads of those cattle going on in the spring? You already mentioned it a little bit, there was a lot of variation and it was a dry year. So we got to take that into account. So
1: I'll just jump right to it. It's kind of like Christmas opening up the present here. One of the things that we found very intriguing we had 17 herds, which if we looked at the average daily gain across all 17 herds, between all the cattle that were treated in all the cattle that were our controls are untreated, there wasn't a really a big statistical difference in average daily gain. However, when we looked at it by the individual herd, so we looked at what did the average daily gain between those two groups at each herd look like, there was five herds where there was a significant difference. So we're talking about 0.1 pound per head per day, and so you're looking at anywhere, depending on your grazing season, eight to sixteen pounds extra gain. Okay. But that's again spread across everybody. So in the herds where where we found this the, the greatest significant difference, it's probably it's even higher than that. There's another study done by the Feedlot Health Management, the Big Feedlot Group out of, out of Okotokes. They did a study a couple of years back and they actually found even a, a better increase. Uh, 0.15 pounds per day in the treated. So, we're, our our finding was kind of in the ballpark. That was kind of the take-home message relating back when you said. So, what did we find in fecal egg counts in the spring? It was really interesting that five herds, wherein you know we saw this difference, they all had fecal egg counts of at least 10 eggs per gram. So to me that was probably one of the most meaningful findings in the whole study because that was the question do we deworm or do we not deworm we've shown that across 17 herds yeah you're gonna across everybody you're gonna get an increase but in five herds that started out with higher fecal egg counts those herds did best and there was one herd that had an average of i forget 40 or 50 eggs per gram and it also had the biggest difference in average daily gain between the treatments. So I think that's a really, really important finding. For many of you that go online and watch BCRC's weather forecast, the long range weather forecasts are actually quite accurate. And they can more or less tell you whether it's gonna be a dry year or a wet year. So I think knowing in the spring what your fecal egg count is at and knowing that it could be a wet or dry year, really does inform you about whether you should be spending the money and taking the effort to, to deworm your, your yearling cattle. And I would say yearlings, deworming calves and deworming females, you know, cows, that's, that doesn't really pay. So we're really talking the, the biggest bang for the buck really comes from deworming yearlings going out on pasture.
0: Right. So in many herds, that might just be replacement heifers that they're keeping, right? They may not have grass cattle, but this would apply to those replacement heifers as well. Exactly.
1: Good point, John.
0: We mentioned this already. So there were some surprises in the particular types of worms you found. Anything beyond the homonchus result where you found this worm that's usually associated with the southern U.S.?
1: You know, the homonchus was interesting because if you look at previous studies in Western Canada, we're going to find that almost all the population is Cuperia and Ostertasia, almost exclusively. Here across these herds, homuncus was in all 17 herds and a third of all the eggs in the spring were homuncus. Now that drops off to five percent at fall and there's probably a reason for that. Just as egg production from each species changes and how some are more pathogenic or cause more damage than others. Some species also, the immune system ramps up a lot quicker, it takes a couple of years actually to get a really good immune response to ostratasia, whereas cupuria and Homonchus can be quite quick. So I suspect the, the drop in homoncus relates to just natural immunity kicking in as well. So dropping to 5% would be like, okay, if I would have found 5% at the beginning of the study, I probably wouldn't have been like, wow, that's a big issue. But finding a third, that has never been reported. I don't think that's been reported in any studies in in Canada, whether they're dairy or beef. And so not to dwell on it too much, but there's something very interesting happening here that we're starting to see that.
0: Interesting. And I'm sure Dr. Gilliard and others will probably be following up on that finding in other studies. We've talked about risk factors already in your particular study were you able to show some of those same risk factors again?
1: Yeah, you know, if you have high fecal egg counts in the spring, you're going to have high fecal egg counts in the fall. If if you deworm, you're going to almost knock fecal egg counts to nothing. It was interesting in our previous studies, we found that fecal egg counts actually increased during the summer. In this, in this particular study, fecal egg counts actually decreased. And if you look at the literature, uh, depending on the study sometimes they go up sometimes they come down and we're talking about in the control group so in the non treated groups we saw no matter what they're they're going to kind of come down but ultimately precipitation 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 that's what drives peak leg counts and that was the thing that was that really jumped out of our analysis okay so the greater the level of cumulative precipitation so we looked at how much rainfall Happen on each farm, and we basically used Environment Canada stations that were closest to the farm, and how much accumulated by each month, and then over the entire grazing period, and there is almost a linear relationship for increased rain related to increased parasite load. So again, maybe not surprising, but it's really nice to see what you see in the data expressed. Same thing as what you can see in the in the literature. So. That was the big thing, John. That's the take-home. The other thing that we did find, and I found it in a previous study, that animals grazing on, on darker soil. So we looked at soil map, and we looked at gray soils, the light brown, brown, dark brown, black. And the darker the soil, the greater the fecal egg counts. Not sure what that means, whether that's related to those areas also generally having more precipitation, right? Because... The soil is basically how much organic materials in there. The darker it is, so there could be that. There also could be it could be what we could say is confounding. There's another factor that's confusing our results, and it could be just management. So if we think about the Southwest, uh, in particular, where you know it's grassland, lighter soil, how we how we run those cattle more extensively on pasture versus as we get more north into the heavier soil where stocking densities are higher. Is, is that what's really going on? Is, is soil type basically a proxy for, for management and management is what's really changing that? I don't know. But it was interesting to see that we found this relationship again between soil and fecal egg counts.
0: Well, I can guess what you're going to recommend, but if we were going to tell producers that had some yearling cattle or replacement heifers on grass this year, how would you tell them whether to deworm or not?
1: Yeah, so I I guess that's the ultimate question, right? That's what we're really here to figure out. And so I would say, based on the data that we generated in this study, that I want to know what my fecal egg count is before I, I kick my cattle out. And that's not difficult. As a producer, you could put on a a rubber glove or put on a palpation sleeve and walk around. And when you stir up the cattle, one of the first things they're going to do is when they stand up, is they're going to defecate and go get a bunch of pooled samples, put them all together, take them into the vet clinic and ask, can you just run a single sample? Do a fecal egg count on this. What is the fecal egg count? If it's greater than 10, hmm." Think about okay, my cattle are at higher risk of having parasi- a parasite load that might affect their production. Okay, the next thing I'd ask myself is well, did, was it a really dry winter? Do we have much snow cover? What, what does the spring look like? Summer, what does the long range forecast look like? And if everything kind of points to it's going to be a normal year or, or above normal for moisture, then I'd be definitely thinking about, uh, about deworming. And so that would Those would be my recommendations, John. One of the very interesting things that is occurring, particularly in small ruminants, which we talked about sheep and goats, is parasites in these species are a real problem, especially when you get into very dense stocking. And over in Europe, in places like that where there's heavy sheep production, they really... Ramped up sort of the science of deworming. They don't go in anymore and deworm the entire herd like we do. What they do is they'll go in and deworm, say, sheep that look like they're maybe have overt parasites. You know, clinically they look like they have parasites. They might just pick a subpopulation within that group to deworm and leave all the rest left untreated. And they call this sort of the refugia strategy. And I don't want to kind of get into the science too much, but it basically allows the cattle to still be experiencing natural infection and natural immunity. And why have they done this? Because a lot of anthelmintic resistance is occurring in, in these operations. And so they're losing, just like we're losing the use of some antimicrobials in feedlots and elsewhere, they're losing the ability to actually treat parasites in their sheep and their goats. So by leaving some of the the animals untreated, these animals don't develop resistance. So it kind of balances against the animals that are treated that are more likely that their parasites will develop resistance, if that makes sense. So I think what you're going to see slowly is this concept of this uh, refugia strategy being adopted in cattle. There's only one study that I know of that just came out in 2023, where they compared uh, a group of cattle, one hundred percent of them dewormed versus ninety percent of them dewormed, and found out they had the exact same performance. So, is it should be ninety percent dewormed or seventy or sixty? I don't know. Nobody knows what that magic number is, but there is probably some wiggle room to say we don't have to deworm all animals, which will save us money, but more importantly, it will prolong the use of of our anthelmintics or our dewormers because we'll be slowing down the rate of of resistance. So I think that's the thing to look forward to in the future. I think you're going to see more studies in that area in cattle because again, the principles are very well known on the small small ruminant side.
0: Yes, we should also mention that most producers are using some of these products for external parasite control in the fall. And that's Still gonna impact the resistance of the internal parasites. So that's probably the most common approach in cow-calf herds is to use these products in the fall largely to control lice.
1: You know, John, that's that's an excellent point. That, as as your research has shown, just about everybody applies the Avermectin in the fall. And you're right, they're not they're giving it to their cows and their replacements and their calves. Everything coming through the chute gets that. They, they're not really doing anything to control internal parasites. They will control them, but they're, they're such a low level. They don't have an economic value in, in controlling them. And it's really about lice control. And And unfortunately, while you're killing off the lice, you're exposing all those... Those worms within the within the guts to the, the the product, and so that's a really good that's a really good point, and it's probably something we have to stop and think about. We also have people that are deworming young calves going on a pasture. Again, not a lot of data to show that that's really useful, and actually might be counterproductive, because you actually want those young calves to be exposed naturally to some of these parasites, so that when they do get to be yearlings and go back to pasture. The next year, they already have some immunity. Versus, if you've cleaned them right out and they're in a completely more or less clean herd, then when they get to yearlings thrown on pasture, if that pasture is contaminated, then they're going to get they're going to have a problem uh, because they don't have any natural immunity building up yet.
0: That's great. Murray, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you taking time to do another podcast episode with me. And it's a great introduction to a big topic, really, and a common issue that most producers have to think about. So I really appreciate you helping us out today. Thank you.
1: My pleasure, John. Thank you.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Murray Jelinski. And thanks as always to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Take care till next time.